You're listening to the Onside Podcast, the podcast for innovation-driven entrepreneurship here in Atlantic Canada. We're sharing stories and building community around this kind of entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Alex McCann, and this is season two, episode 14. And today we're doing an industry spotlight on opportunities in the bioeconomy. Today, our guest is Beth Mason, president and CEO of the Assurance Center. In 2017, Beth was appointed the CEO of the Assurance Center with her forward-thinking mindset, which helps connect large industry and community partners to develop and demonstrate innovative, clean solutions. Beth's background brings a mix of industry, research, and business approaches to problem-solving from many sectors, including private business and government. She is committed to enabling client success by ensuring core business activities and growth plans align with client needs. All right. Well, Beth, thanks so much for joining us here on the Onside Podcast. It's really great to have you here. And uh, yeah, I'm so so glad you could be here with us. Thank you. Thanks for the invite. Look forward to it. Awesome. So, you know, I told people lots of great things about you and uh, about some of the things that you're doing at the Assurance Center. But uh, we always like to let our onside guests sort of uh, introduce themselves. And so I'd like to give you the opportunity to share a little bit about who you are, Beth, and how did you actually end up here in Nova Scotia? Oh, well, I don't generally share stories of my sordid past, but we'll, <laughs> we'll keep it brief, hopefully. <laughs> Uh, I, well, I do have a very varied background. I don't come, you know, from academia. I come from industry. I've been in large business, small business, built my own businesses, worked for government and all kinds of different things. So um, moving target. And I first came out to Nova Scotia, actually, oh, in the middle of my PhD, which I was doing in, in Alberta at the time. I can admit to that. That was on animal nutrition and physiology, of all things. And uh, I came to do a semester for a guy who was on sabbatical, whooping it up on the beaches of Brazil mm. uh, in the winter in Truro. And I had so much fun, I couldn't wait to get back. So that was a long time ago. And now here I am. <laughs> well, that's fantastic. I, I feel like we won by uh, getting you to come all this way to Nova Scotia. And what, what were you doing your, your research on? You, you know, you have this kind of really interesting um, background. And I know you've been focused on kind of derivatives and of, of products and things like that. What, what was your research that you were doing when you landed on our shores? Well, that was the crazy thing. Yeah, my... Um... PhD, funnily enough, was on simulation modeling. And that's so long ago, it baffles me that, you know, right now we're just getting around to doing things like digital twin and machine learning. I'm not going to say how many decades ago <laughs> we were already talking about replacing doctors at that time with AI. So I guess it just took a little bit longer than I figured. So <laughs> mm -hmm. when I came this time, it, it was really more to build my own business, which was on marine natural products extraction. So, mm -hmm. and that follows a long lifelong tradition for me of, of looking at ways to upcycle waste nutrient supplies. It's pretty much everything I've done in the past has touched on that. Mm -hmm. And was that your particular, because you're, you're from the UK, right? Scotland is correct. So was your closeness or proximity to the ocean and the water there? Is that what got you interested in sort of the marine um, extraction kind of research or what kind well, of got you excited there? Yeah, you, you're digging out those pieces I don't <laughs> tell people. Um, I When I went to university in Scotland, 
most of my uh, cohort already owned farms and were dairy farmers or arable farmers in Fife, uh, so I was in Edinburgh. And uh, so I thought, well, I'm not going to do the same as everybody else because mm-hmm. then I won't get a job and they've already got farms. So I went actually into um, hog nutrition. So, and, and it's kind of from there that it all kind of manifested. So I had, when I met my husband in Canada, he had a hog farm and we basically took it from 100% bought food ingredients from the prairies to about almost almost 70% byproduct ingredients so it you know it's always been one of those things where to me like what there's no such thing as waste there's a nutrient supply that can be recycled upcycled and made into higher value so why would we even think about wasting anything oh that's really interesting i didn't know about that uh kind of early foray and kind of uh that uh that's a really interesting sort of entry into the kind of what we're going to be talking about today, which is around the bioeconomy and uh, waste stream valorization and all kinds of uh, really great things. But I didn't realize you had this uh, personal experience of uh, trying to create that for your own company and farm and, and business with your husband. And and was that difficult to implement when you were doing it with your own farm, with your, your hog farm? or it It's like all companies. I mean, people tend not to think about farmers and food production as a business you know it's like you're a a carer for the environment and they don't look at it as a business venture but you know ours definitely was like every producer I've ever met has been an innovator and has an off-site business if you look at statistics in Canada I think something like 90% of farms have off-farm revenue sources to keep them going Mm -hmm. so I mean you have to innovate so I mean even there it was bucking a trend in BC where ours was to start manufacturing your own food for livestock. So we did that and we went one step further and created a business and distributing co-products from the food sector in greater Vancouver region. Just a glamorous way of saying you were a a trucking logistics company (laughs) (laughs) with a secret knowledge of nutrition you know, so so everything we did, again, I think you come around to innovators, farmers are some of the best. And it kind of comes back to that necessity is the mother of invention. Mm-hmm. It, we wouldn't have survived the downturns in the hog industry had we not replaced all that purchased material with co-products. Mm-hmm. Yeah, ab- absolutely. And I think that that's something that's, uh, you know, a lot of people who are in the agriculture sector or farmers or other folks are really looking for is like, what are those value added opportunities that they might know that are out there, but they just may not really understand how they can take advantage of that? So, so I have a question. How did you then move from doing this for your own business and, you know, having your specialty logistics company and creating all these other uh, co-products or byproducts that you were able to feed back in. How did you move from that into doing more of the research? Because you also have an industrial research background as well. Is that what happened when you kind of moved to Nova Scotia and to Truro? Did you make that kind of leap from the the managing and the of your business and your farm and then moving into kind of a more innovative look at sort of bioeconomy stuff or how did you make that leap i don't always um worked wherever i was doing any sort of applied research I always worked with you know an academic institution because generally they had those early stage uh, tools to be able to dig deeper than we could in terms of direct application so it wasn't new 
you know, in coming here, we'd already established a supply of marine ingredients and and a knowledge that, you know, looking in, in, in the literature, basically, that there's really nothing more potent than marine natural products. And so the West Coast had a supply. And when I came out here, it was quite clear the East Coast has a supply of much underutilized mm-hmm. marine resources. And so combining that knowledge of functional molecules and nutrition with supply and, and logistics and, and business creation is really what, what I came to do. Mm. And then somehow managed to be in charge of the insurance center. <laughs> just, you know, somehow, you know, just had to, the right combination of, of, of skills. Well, well, let's let's talk about the Vashurin Center. And But before we do, maybe for some of our listeners who, you know, this might be the first time that they're kind of hearing about the bioeconomy, how would you describe the bioeconomy? Like, what is that? Oh, probably heard my my <laughs> definition before, and and that is um, all things that you can make from petrochemicals you can make from a biological source. You know, a petrochemical is basically a, a carbon chain, and then is refined. And carbon exists in basically all our primary commodities that we produce across Canada, whether that's forest biomass, whether that's pea starches from cereal crops, or whether that's you know methane from gas production. They're all carbon sources. You can break any carbon source down into a C5, C6 molecule, and that's actually wonderful food. Uh, It's sugar for microbes. So in the last 10 years, we've seen kind of a revolution in engineering biology. And now you basically can take a little slave microbial or yeast or algae and make it produce from those sugars any of those things that you can make from petrochemicals. Mm-hmm. And that pretty much touches everything in our lives. So, so many sectors from food, ingredients, flavors, functional molecules, nutraceuticals, green chemicals, bioplastics, cosmetics, everything you can think of. Uh, and some people are probably surprised how much petrochemical mm-hmm. ingredients are out there. Mm-hmm. Um, all that can be replaced, and that's the biomanufacturing sector. Awesome. Well, I think that's really exciting. I, I, I think I read, uh, this is a while ago, I think Coca-Cola might be the largest user of bioplastics, you know, in the world. And if, you know, a, a company like uh, Coca-Cola can replace just a fraction of the amount of uh, petrochemical-based plastics uh, that they're producing with uh, plant-based or other kinds of sources, it can make a huge sort of environmental impact. And that's really important. That's really important. So so why don't you tell us a little bit about the the Vashurin Center? Because you, you said you randomly, you know, just happened to, you know, have the right combination of, you know, life lived experience, on the farm experience, uh, research and uh, other experience around um, marine. Uh, how did you end up at the Vashurin Center? And what is the Vashurin Center? Oh, yeah, I came out to build my business, but I uh, I met our founder when I came here and uh, and was convinced that in, you know, Atlantic Canada there was incredible potential somewhat untapped to grow, you know, the bioeconomy. And so I did work. I built the bioprocessing side, which basically gave us a fermentation base, which then we expanded into biomanufacturing. The VC as we call it, I call it the little engine that can so it's based on the premise that, you know, we need to move fast. We have to start small, but we should aim big. And that's what we do. So it is a not-for-profit organization that behaves like a grown-up business in the service sector. 
And the service we provide is capital scale up for clean technology. And what that means is, you know, where we live through the era of IT companies and you could put your laptop in your basement and generate a million beta units and and create your multi-million dollar business, you can't do that with clean tech. It tends to require large capital equipment. And so what the Vishurn does is to try to build those platforms um, so that they're a shared use resource. And that way, lots of new innovative companies can come through here and scale and connect with the large corporate or government partners that we have to deploy their technology. So our number one mission is to get clean technologies deployed fast. Mm-hmm. And and what kinds of companies are, are operating out of the Vashuran Center right now? I know there's been a few new, new ones that have uh, sort of come under your wing. What kinds of companies are there? And then what do they make or do so our audience can kind of get a sense of that? Yeah, on uh, there's sort of two main divisions that we have. The, the one is, and, and I split them into, you know, scope one, scope two emissions when it comes to our, our mission to decarbonize our economy. Um, the scope one is our energy division modeling net zero pathways and pulling technologies in to achieve that. And the scope two is the procurement chain. How does a manufacturing company find green sustainable products and that tends to be where our focus has been on biomanufacturing and thermochemical transformation so types of companies and and this is the beauty of this this platform technology as i said it hits almost everything you can imagine but those tend to be derived from synbio which is uh, you know we have some top-notch universities in canada um, producing entrepreneurs who who have created the a a bug, as I call it, that manages to spit out the desired compound. And that might be a company producing a cosmetic ingredient. It might be a company producing a a biopolymer preliminary or a bionylon. And so you can start to see like those companies target everything that we do. Mm -hmm. Um, And yet, you know, they're all kind of early stage businesses. So there's all kinds of cool things. I I never cease to be amazed. It ranges from preventative therapeutics for livestock health. Uh, It's just every company that comes in the door blows me away. Mm. I think I remember uh, touring there and you had some companies that uh, were making some products for wound healing. I know there were some companies, I think, focused on fuel. I mean, the the range of things that, that are possible are really, really kind of staggering and really kind of interesting. You know, when I when I kind of think about the companies that are in there and you're you're really kind of trying to push the boundaries in terms of the kind of value that can be extracted from whether it's from ag sources, marine forestry products, you know, whether it's a cellulosic um, uh, technologies that are being deployed or things like that. Can you maybe share with folks a little bit about what goes on at the Vashuran Center is a little bit different than kind of like your traditional uh, sectors or industries. So how does it take things further than, you know, a company that's making pellets, you know, from forestry products or something like that? How do we, because it's a little bit beyond that. What's kind of the difference? Yeah, it's a, it's a good analogy. So, I mean, if you think of the forestry sector alone, typical products would be things like, you know, ultrabiota producing biographene, which is a small molecule and at small inclusion rates brings incredible strength to concrete or can be used in in dyes and colorings and and all kinds of applications. So 
you're in an area where, and biomanufacturing is the same, like you can't use our, our Cadillac equipment if you don't have a high value molecule. So things like food flavorings, you know, mm. the values of those kinds of functional ingredients tends to be in the thousands of dollars per kg, where if you're simply taking forestry biomass and making pellets, then then you're, you know, maybe into a hundred per tonne. Mm-hmm. A ton being a thousand kgs, so you can see the magnitude mm-hmm. of value increment by refining, basically, mm-hmm. all, all that you're doing, whether it's a thermochemical process or a, a fermentation process, you're refining those value molecules so that you're targeting a very high-end market mm-hmm. of functionality. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that that's that level of specialization. And I guess maybe the flexibility in which the things can go into. I'm all, I'm always impressed, you know, that from the same source of material, you know, you can develop a flavoring, a fuel, all kinds of additives. And, and so I think it's, you know, as the demand for inputs, whether it's in um, – you know, in the biotech space, or uh, I, I definitely know, you know, I'm, I'm a woman. And, you know, I like to, you know, wear cosmetics sometimes, like people really demand really high purity, high grade um, ingredients that go into cosmetics or topical ointments or things like that, things that, that uh, uh, demand a very high price and purity and, and level of uh, efficacy. And I think those are the kinds of things that can be derived from these kinds of processes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, the, the thing about the Assurance Center is not only can we help those companies produce enough at scale for clients to test and therefore, you know, let's say take cosmetics, you need enough to do a test run before a cosmetics company is going to buy that product. That's where scale is critical. Mm-hmm. So it's critical in getting enough product out to the market to test. And that test then is critical in generating the next level of investment. So mm-hmm. I mean, one of the things to remember about the companies coming here is that not only do they build a team and they build their own jobs, but they attract an awful lot of investment to be able to get to that stage where, you know, you you trust it mm-hmm. and it's being used by a large company that everybody would know the name of, right? Yeah, interesting, interesting. And, um, you know, we talked a lot about uh, the companies that are there that are they're piloting and scaling and trying to build their teams. But what what are some of the, the challenges that you're seeing kind of in Canada's bioeconomy or in, in bioprocessing in, in Canada or in, in Nova Scotia? Are there some things that are sort of blocking these types of companies that you either have at the Vashurin Center or others that are across Canada? Because we, Canada, a, a, we're, we're very um, resource blessed, <laughs> I would say. And so whether it's from canola to, you know, a marine or, you know, um, algae, you know, all these things, we, we, we're very resource blessed. But um, other than the actual resources themselves, like, are there some things that are kind of getting in the way for that would prevent these companies from growing and scaling? Yeah, there's, you know, in clean tech, there's some commonalities for businesses growth to scale and they're common across all those sectors. Number one is is capacity, mm-hmm. like, you know, capital cost of equipment is prohibitive. So it doesn't just need a laptop, right? So that's, you know, how to finance that in an efficient way. And that's why our open access model, I think, is attractive in that, Every company then doesn't need to find, mm-hmm. you know, a million dollars to put this reactor in when they only need it for this phase. So, you know, you're you're making efficient use of capital. So, you know, when you look at what we're building in the 10,000 litre capacity, there is 
only one other vessel that size in Canada. So when you look at the number of Symbio companies coming out, where are they going to go? So they go to the States or they go to Europe where some of that capacity exists, but even they recognize capacity is an issue. You know, last week, the Biden uh, administration announced a trillion dollar investment in biomanufacturing for the U.S. Mm. So when you think of our little 10, 15 million dollar implementation at this scale, Mm. um, we're going to need an awful lot of those across Canada if we're going to create the capacity. Mm. So that's one challenge. The second is, and and it's common to a lot of businesses, building a business team. So, Mm -hmm. you know, when clients come to us, they're very knowledgeable in their core technology, but they need help in terms of engineering, design, team building, HQP, all of those things that, you know, you kind of figure you build a technical platform job done for us. (laughs) And instead, you realize all the other pieces of the puzzle that that companies Mm -hmm. that are scaling need. They don't just need a, a wee office or, mm-hmm. or a program. They need all kinds of help. So that's another one. And probably the later stages is a regulatory and procurement play. Mm-hmm. And that is if, let's say, you use cosmetics as an example, compound number one is widely accepted. It's used everywhere um, and approved for use. But you come up with an alternative to that. They might find all the regulations relate to that existing product. They don't relate to the one that you just made. Mm-hmm. So in some instances, you've almost got to reinvent the regulatory approval process for your product. So, you know, nationally, we need some approach to, you know, approval of, of use of mm-hmm. these technologies. And, you know, most of them, like I say, have, have been spit out by microbes or mm-hmm. pretty much safe. Mm-hmm. But but getting them through a regulatory system could be years. And we don't have that long to green our economy. So we really have to seriously think about how we can accelerate the mm-hmm. regulatory burden on getting process and product mm-hmm. to market. Mm-hmm. And I think it kind of speaks to the need for a collective effort of, you know, 3P partnership and investment and advancement. And it's not something that each company should be left to do on their own. Yeah. Wow. Those are both really, um, you know, heavy things to work through, kind of even on the operational development for the talent, the folks that you need, because it's you're right. It's, uh, you know, we're here in Halifax. We have Volta here. You know, it's a tech accelerator. And I'm sure some courses and, and, and programs and things would be, you know, applicable to the kinds of companies that are there with you. But they're also very different. And so the burden that they have, you know, they're not developing a, a SaaS product that's going to be released in a year. What they're working on might just even from a, a technical standpoint might take five years to get to the prototype level. And then the regulatory, I was just having a conversation this morning about this exact topic where we're trying to work on something and can't get the approval it needs from CFIA because it's a product that's not existed before or not existed in the same way. And how are we going to get this approved? And, mm-hmm. you know, and and just the, the timeline it takes uh, when you're trying to uh, prove your product, also get to the market, you know, sales, like all of those other kinds of things. And whether it, we see the same thing in other fields, we've had folks from med tech and other other kinds of areas, and you know, as from a consumer standpoint or Health Canada standpoint or from these others, you don't want things to be safe and efficient. Nobody wants a product in the market that's going to hurt people. But uh, you're when you're on the cutting edge, you know, making sure that there's processes that are in place that can be complementary or you know move things along. 
And especially, I guess, what I'm kind of hearing is that the U.S. in particular is going to be making this huge investment. uh, And there's a little bit of a risk that uh, if we don't double down, our companies are going to be, you know, attracted because we're really great in Canada at, um, you know, that early stage. We're pretty good. It's like we're world known. We got great research facilities, all that good stuff. We get to a certain point and then you kind of plateau. And then if you keep going, you want to stay. But it's pretty tempting, especially when there's a lot of money, you know, flowing around and um, the regular I, I don't know. I'm not an expert on U.S. regulatory, but in certain product areas, it's definitely a little bit more flexible. I'll just put it like that. So that is that is definitely a challenge. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we tend to follow uh, what the U.S. does, but I mean, all is not lost. I mean, you've seen the speed of, of approval of vaccines by a collective effort. Mm-hmm. Um we really need to do that for things other than vaccines now. We know it can be done and we know it's going to move faster if you do it together. Mm-hmm. So that's, you know, that's all we've got to do. And then, you know, from the perspective of losing companies, if we build technology platforms here, if we build capacity here, the venture funds are coming. They're already coming here. So there would be no need then for those companies to leave mm-hmm. um, and go to the U.S. And, and that way we keep not only the talented entrepreneurs that are generated here, but the IP that's generated mm-hmm. in Canada in Canadian research institutions. And it's a miss on, on Canada's part not to put some investment into that post-academic sphere mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, of you know, technology platforms and shared infrastructure. Otherwise, as you said, we are going to miss. Mm. Well, other than that, keeping things on a semi like positive uh, note, like what's something that you're excited about when you think about the Vashuran Center or the future? You know, we, we do have these challenges. There are these obstacles that are out there. But, what, you know, this is a very exciting space. And especially now, there's so much focus on uh, climate adaptation, climate technology, food, food security. Like what's something that's really exciting or that you think about when you think about the work of the Vashuran Center or the bioeconomy? I think actually with a a colleague and and co-conspirator this morning, we were talking about actually recognizing the successes that are coming out. And when we see companies that have made it through that gap and are at their seed rounds and and moving into series A, to me, that's incredibly exciting because Mm. with our 10X capacity, with where those companies are getting to already, we're going to finally see deployment. And so what excites me is the thought of those first plants mm-hmm. in Canada actually manufacturing those sustainable ingredients and materials for our manufacturing sector. Mm-hmm. So that will be awesome. Yeah. Yeah, I want to be at all the the, uh, the ribbon cutting <laughs> <laughs> ceremonies. That will be I, great. Yeah, I'll watch from the background, but I, just, I, I want to see it happen. And, and I, I think it's coming. That's the nice thing. Yeah. Um, it's going to happen. Yeah. Well, for folks who are who are listening in, uh, who've gotten excited about everything we've we've talked about today, like what kinds of skills do you need to enter into um, the bioeconomy or be focused on bioprocessing? Like what what kinds of skills? If if you're, there's a young person out there that's like, oh, you know, I'm I'm interested in clean tech and you know and things like that. What kinds of skills are, are needed to kind of go into this space? And any particular recommendations for people who are from BIPOC communities as they're thinking about that as well? It's interesting. I mean, for many, many years, we've talked about creating students with a multidisciplinary approach. And I'm not seeing that, uh, you know, our, our academic institutions are very much siloed still. Mm-hmm. 
I would say, you know, as a young person, open the door, think broadly and align yourself with a whole load of skill sets. Mm -hmm. Don't narrow. Um, It was always a fear of mine, you know, coming through university. I didn't want to be pigeonholed into one little thing. I think, you know, we also don't teach logic and kind of problem solving. If you're a problem solver, this is a perfect space for you. Mm. So I think as time goes by, we're having to look already, and I thought we would do this later in this process, but right now we have to start immediately looking at upskilling. So for downstream extraction engineering, we're pulling from the oil sector Mm. because those guys have technical hands-on at scale knowledge on extraction equipment. We have an incredible diversity in our fermentation technology people who operate. We just need people who've operated at scale. So I think we're, you know, we're working with with other entities like NGEN, the the you know, the manufacturing supercluster and federal programs to look at what do we do to upcycle people faster, mm-hmm. right? So for you know skills development where there might be a background in in something else. I mean, maybe we find someone who's been in in the brewing industry (laughs) and simply, you know, upskill them into industrial fermentation by adding key skill sets. I mean, one of the challenges that we didn't talk about is, you know, where do we do that? Like, Mm. you know, typically academic centers don't move fast and we need to move fast. So we need to look for those people who have, you know, a range of skill sets that are a good beginning and then build training programs around that. And, and hands-on training is, mm-hmm. is probably going to be a massive piece of that. Even today, nothing will substitute from experience, like hands-on experience. So get into industry, get into manufacturing. At that point, it's possible to translate those skills. Mm-hmm. Well, we definitely have a lot of engineers in Nova Scotia who have gone into the brewing industry. <laughs> maybe maybe they're yeah. looking for something else or maybe they can come back around. Maybe they yeah. can come back around. Any any thoughts or recommendations for, uh, you know, folks who are, you know, maybe from BIPOC communities or women? Are there any kind of uh, resources or things like that that might be helpful just to even explore or, or to take a look at kind of the, the industry? Or maybe at the Vashurn Center or at CBU or things like that. Yeah, I mean, we always encourage everybody to come and look at what we do because I, I think for anybody, regardless of who you are, um, when you go through school, you, you're never aware of the massive variety of opportunities that exist. Mm. Um, and so I think, you know, even now, you know, people are limited in what they think they can do. To me, it doesn't matter where you come from and who you are. You need to aim high and you'll get there. Mm. Um, you know, so I think open open the door and, and get out and explore all the amazing things there are that you can do in, in today's, you know, even in the bioeconomy, it's so vast mm-hmm. in terms of, you know, you might be in sales, you might be in product development, you might be in regulars, you might be in production. Um, th- there's just so many things, mm. uh, the array of, of careers that people could pursue. And there's no reason that anybody should be left behind. Awesome. I love it. I love it. And I have one last question. It's one of the ones that we always ask our, our guest, which is uh, around, you know, we're talking here at Onset about innovation-driven entrepreneurship. What does innovation-driven entrepreneurship mean to you? Trick question. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it's not an optional question, is it? <laughs> You're like, well, next. <laughs> it's kind of what I just said. You know, I mean, to me, uh, 
innovation is like invention, you know, 10% genius and 90% perspiration. Um, you look at the entrepreneurs who succeed and they're the ones who will battle on regardless. Now, I say that with a qualifier and that is not regardless of the fact that you've actually looked to see that that your innovation is needed by somebody. Mm. So, you know, I, I think a, a successful innovator or entrepreneur has actually been perceptive enough to see that there's a need for what they do mm. mm-hmm. and then figured out how to fill it. Yeah. Rather than the reverse where you say, you know, oh, I really like this. I'm going to create this widget. And then and then you get your head above the parapet and realize nobody wants it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, one of the first questions that probably weeds a lot of entrepreneurs out is who's buying. Mm-hmm. Um, so so I would say and a skilled entrepreneur has actually figured out somebody needs what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And right now there's a massive need. Therefore, there's a massive opportunity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I love it. I love it. That's that's perfect. I think that's a great way to uh, to wrap things up for us in this uh, in this episode. If if folks want to learn more about the Vashurin Center or about you, Beth, what's the best way that they can connect with uh, with you? Well, uh, our website is one uh, access point, and I think we have a LinkedIn uh, profile as well. So um, VashurinCenter.ca. Um, not easy to spell, but. Uh, <laughs> Just start Googling and you'll find us. Okay, we'll put uh, it up. We'll put it up on our website for people. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. That's probably the easiest way to find us. And, and you know, we can get messages through there from people who are just interested to join the, you know, the kind of fun activities that we get engaged in or, or just want to know more about the direct community impact of some of our programs. So, yeah. Please feel free to reach out. Okay, perfect, perfect. Well, with that, I'm going to say thank you to uh, having you on our show today. And uh, for folks who want to learn a little bit more about Onside, you can find us on our website, onsidenow.ca. Please uh, enjoy our podcast by liking and subscribing and giving us a thumbs up and some comments. And as we come to a close, we would like to thank Nova Scotia's Community, Culture and Heritage. We're so grateful for your support and helping us to make our podcast. And uh, we'll look forward to uh, connecting with you on our next episode. So thanks so much. This has been a Podstarter production. production.